We'll take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'm going to preach a message this morning I've entitled, All About His Glory. And if you've been around here any length of time at all, you've probably heard me make that statement. I'll usually make it like this. God is all about... Let's try that one more time. God is all about... And that's exactly the theme of the passage we're going to study today. And it's not just that God the Father is all about his glory, but what we'll see in John chapter 17 is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, too, is all about his glory. John 17, this section we're beginning today, is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. We, we sometimes refer to the Lord's prayer as that prayer where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, and so on. But that's really best known as the disciples' model prayer. This is the Lord's prayer because this is the prayer that Jesus the Son offers and provides to the Father. It's been called sometimes the holy of holies of sacred scripture. Reason being, we are given through the inspired pen of the Apostle John entrance into this intimate communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Philip Melanchthon, who was the theologian of the Reformation that served with Martin Luther in Germany, he's, he's really the towering intellect of the Reformation. He had this to say about John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. He says, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. We cannot, in our lifetime, mind the depths of truths that are contained in these 26 verses in Jesus' high priestly prayer. This chapter has been the source of massive volumes of works by theologians and scholars alike. Thomas, Cran uh, excuse me, Oliver Cromwell, who was the chaplain in the Church of England, his um, Thomas Manton, the theologian, he preached 45 sermons on John 17. Uh, by comparison, I've only got three mapped out for us, okay? Now, within the context of John's gospel, this prayer of Jesus that is recorded here in chapter 17, it comes at the conclusion of what's known as the upper room discourse. This began at the end of chapter 13, and we've been studying it for weeks, months now, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. That's the preaching, that's the teaching of Jesus, the final words, the didactic he gave his disciples before the cross. And then he concludes that sermon, if you will, with this prayer. And we're kind of familiar with that, right? Whenever I conclude a sermon, what do I do? I pray. And that kind of gives you a clue. Okay, the service is almost over. It's about time to go home, right? Now, if I were to conclude my sermon with as lengthy a prayer as what Jesus does, you'd probably start to get a little restless. Come on, preacher, you already preached. Why are you preaching your prayer, right? But this is what we're going to have here is this lengthy sermon, if you will, in prayer from Jesus that communicates tremendous truth. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, let us pray or let's bow our heads and close our eyes. He just goes from one breath of teaching to the next breath of praying. And we see that in verse one of our focal text. Look with me in John 17. I'll begin reading in verse one. This is the inspired and errant word of God. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." Now, the central truth of this section, these 10 verses, is what I've entitled the message, glory. It's all about glory. Six times in these 10 verses, Jesus uses the term glory or glorified uh, to communicate this fact. In fact, in verse one, he says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. This is he praying to the father. And then in verse five, he again prays, and now father, glorify me. Now, what does he mean by glory? What does he mean by glorify? That's a very churchy word, isn't it? It's a word we say a lot. It's a word we pray a lot. It's a word we preach a lot. It's a word we talk about a lot is the glory or to glorify God, to glorify Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means his, his majesty, his splendor, his magnificence, his awesomeness, his beauty. So to glorify is to honor that. To glorify is to celebrate that. In fact, I've got a very simple, almost childlike, colloquial definition for the term glorify. Look at the next slide. Glorify is this, to make a big deal of. That's what it means to glorify. You make a big deal of something. You make a big deal of someone. That's what it means. In fact, I want to take this simple definition that I've put on the screen there and apply it to some very familiar passages in the gospel of John where Jesus talks about glory and being glorified. And then let's see if they, it fits, right? Look at a few of these with me. Uh, Jesus answered in John 8, 54, if I make a big deal about myself by making a big deal about myself is nothing. It is my father who makes a big deal about me of whom you say he is our God. A few chapters later, John 11, this illness does not lead to death it is from making a big deal about God so that the Son of God may be made a big deal of through it. And then in John 12, Father, make a big deal about your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have made a big deal about it and I will make a big deal about it again. This is glory. To make a big deal about, to magnify, to celebrate someone or something. So we could look at this passage and particularly verse one and verse five where Jesus prays, Father, glorify me. What is he saying? Father, make a big deal about me. Now we hear that and we think, well, that's a little vain, isn't it? 
That's a little self-centered, isn't it, for Jesus to be praying that the Father would make a big deal about him, that the Father would glorify him? Is it self-centered? Is it vain for Jesus to be praying this, in this way? No, it is not. It's not self-centered to pray that you would be glorified if you are, in fact, the center of everything. It's not vain for him to pray, God, glorify me, make a big deal about me, if, in fact, the universe revolves around you. That is altogether right and appropriate. So glory is the subject matter of this passage, and more particularly, the eternal, everlasting glory of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. As we break down this passage this morning over the next few minutes, there are four particular main points I want to draw out from this passage and reveal to you this morning uh, as we consider it. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the provision of glory. The provision of glory. Jesus knew exactly the reason for which he came to earth. He knew exactly the reason for which he took on human flesh. He came for the express purpose of being the sacrificial lamb who takes upon his own body the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin. This is the reason he came. This is the provision of God that he would come and be that vicarious sacrifice. And this is what is involved in what the text is communicating here, particularly in the first four verses. And I want you to see how this provision of glory is made as Jesus breaks it down. First of all, he makes this provision for our salvation at an appointed time. At an appointed time. He says, um, my hour has come. If you've been with us through our study of John's gospel, you may remember that over and over and over again, Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. And right at the beginning when his mother said, we don't have any wine for the wedding feast. We need you to do something about it, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Mom, my hour has not yet come. Over and over, Jesus has been repeating that. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And here on the cusp of the cross, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, the hour has come. It's here. The whole point of it all for the incarnation, the point of Christmas is the cross. The point of it all has come. Now, there are many in what's known as progressive Christianity, which actually is not Christianity at all, but they would say that the central thrust and point of Jesus' work and his ministry is two columns. One, his teaching, and two, his example of love and acceptance. That you have the teachings of Jesus and you have his example of a loving life, and these two pillars, these two columns, are what hold up for progressive Christianity the essence of why Jesus came. And certainly, we can appreciate the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus, but the way their kind of life application works is like this. If Jesus' teaching doesn't particularly condemn a lifestyle or a sin or an action, well, then you can't do it either. See? And so they hold up these two things about Jesus as being the essence of his ministry. Guess what? At this point in John 17, the teaching of Jesus, over. 
the example of Jesus, of, of loving and accepting people, it's over. What happens next? The arrest, the trial, the beating, the crucifixion, and Jesus says, now is my hour come. Why? Because that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And namely, these lifestyles and these habit patterns that are applauded by progressive Christians, Jesus is about to die for them. You don't think he takes those seriously? He will die for those sins and make atonement for those sins. This is the main act. All those other things were just a preview. They just validate who he is. They authenticate his claims. But now this is the central act at an appointed time. And consider this. There was never a moment in Jesus's earthly life in which he was not completely conscious and aware of this purpose of the appointed time. He was perfectly cognizant of the unfolding plan of redemption in the mind and the heart of God. The hour has come for Jesus to conclude his labors and to render the one and only atoning sacrifice for sinners like you and me. The hour has come that he who knew no sin might become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The hour has come when he would fulfill all the great prophecies of the Old Testament. The hour has come when all of the shadows and symbols of the law, all of the sacrifice, all of the temple garments, all of the things we see prescribed in the Old Testament, they would find their completion in this moment. The hour has come when the king of light will triumph over the prince of darkness forever. The hour has come. It's an appointed time. And to human eyes, Seeing an image of Jesus hanging on the cross, that's anything but glory. But this is glory. It's glory for the Father and glory for the Son. You see, this whole hour, this whole process involves not just the beating and not just being stapled to a wooden cross. It involves his death, three days dead. It involves his glorious resurrection on that first Easter Sunday it involves his ascension to heaven 40 days later. And friends, it involves his coronation by God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, he says, the hour has come. The provision of glory is at an appointed time. Next, the provision of glory is to an appointed people. This provision of glory is to an appointed people. Look at verse 2. Again, since you have given him, that's the son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, a couple things to point out here. Jesus is fully aware of his position, of his place of authority. He doesn't have to take some self-actualization seminar to understand and to research his own identity. He knows full well who he is. And he says, Father, you have given me all authority over all flesh. Who does that include? Who does all include? All flesh, everybody. It includes Judas, who was at that very moment selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. He has authority at that very moment over the religious leaders who were conspiring against him. 
All flesh includes the Roman soldiers who would nail him to a cross and drop him in the hole hanging on that cross. All authority over all flesh includes everyone. And Jesus says, you have given me authority over all flesh. And that means today, this morning, he has authority over you. He has authority over every nation. He has authority over the political process that's gearing up around us. Oh, God help us, right? He has authority over black and white, young and old, rich and poor, iPhone, Android, Mac, PC. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. He has authority over you. And for what purpose has he been given this authority by the Father? To give authority in order to give eternal life. To give eternal life. That's the reconciliation with God. To give eternal life. Salvation from the wrath of God. Jesus alone possesses that authority. But notice to whom it is given eternal life. Again, authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus is praying to God the Father, and Jesus says to God the Father, Father, you have given me a gift. You have given me an appointed people to whom I will give eternal life. Let me say that again. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's saying, Father, you have given a gift to me, a gift of an appointed people to whom I will give eternal life. This is a powerful concept that we cannot fully grasp or understand with our finite minds. But Jesus introduced this concept to his disciples all the way back in John chapter 6. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The first one is when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Let's review what he said there in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever, whoever, who is it? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All, A-L-L, that the Father gives me will, W-I-L-L, come to me. Who will come to Jesus? Every single individual the Father has given to him. Again, there's an appointed people whom the Father has given to the Son, and all of them will come to the Son, and all are appointed by the Father, every single one. And he continues, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So this begs a question. Who are the appointed people? Who are the ones to whom God has given to the Son? Who are the ones to whom the Son will give eternal life? Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. Watch it. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You may ask the question, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen of God? How do I know if I'm one of the appointed that God has given to the Son? Here's the question. Do you believe in Jesus? 
If you believe in Jesus, you're one of the appointed. If you trust in Christ and his work of atonement for you, you're one of the appointed people that God the Father has given to God the Son. Who is this love gift that God has given to his Son? The church. The church. Have you ever thought of the fact that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? The Bible begins with a wedding by God giving a love gift to Adam of a bride. Her name, Eve. He brings Eve to the man, and Adam says, whoa, man. Right? The Bible begins with a wedding. And the Bible concludes with a wedding. God the Father gives a bride to God the Son, the second Adam. And who is the bride? The bride is the church through the nations and through the ages. The bride is the one that is made up of all those who trust in Christ. If you are a believer this morning, you are a member of the bride of Christ. And the history concludes with a wedding of the Father saying, here's my gift to you, the gift of a bride. And Jesus says, the Father has given me this gift And the son says to the father, I will not lose one of all that you've given to me, but I will give them eternal life. Do you know what that is? Glory. It's glory that Jesus promises through his provision he will give eternal life. When? At an appointed time. To whom? An appointed people. Thirdly, for an appointed relationship. For an appointed relationship relationship. What is the essence of eternal life? The the eternal life that Jesus is praying about here. Look at verse three again. And this, this is eternal life. You want to know the essence of eternal life? It's this right here, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want you to circle that word know, because eternal life is not so much about quantity of time but quality of relationship. This is eternal life, Jesus says. You can have all kinds of ideas about what eternal life is. I'm gonna go with what Jesus says. Jesus says eternal life is boiled down to this one truth, that you know God, that you have a relationship with God. I often think, even as Christians, our longings and our imaginations about heaven and what heaven will be like are are sometimes skewed a bit. And we can think about the things like no more pain and sorrow and suffering in heaven, and that's true. We can think about the pearly gates and the streets of gold, and that's certainly the beauty of heaven that's promised in the Bible. We can think about the removal of temptation, no more sin or consequences of sin, and that certainly is a promise of heaven. And we can think about restoring and renewing relationships with those we love who have gone before and having that wonderful reunification with them. And that too is a promise of heaven. But I'm here to tell you those are all secondary benefits. Those are all secondary benefits of heaven. The primary gain, the primary benefit of heaven is knowing God and his son Jesus. It's relationship with our creator. Eternal life is all about relationship. 
Most of you know this past weekend, I dropped our daughter Amber off in Virginia Beach, Virginia at Regent Law School for her to begin three years of intense study. Lord help her, right? And I'm thankful for all of my five children. Each of my five kids are gifted in different ways and and have different qualities and expertise that define them. My oldest, Aubrey, she's a CPA. She is a personal tax specialist. And so if I ever have a tax question, guess what I do? I call her. She knows it chapter and verse. She can quote it to me, right? My daughter, Ashley, who's serving in the nursery this morning, she's not here to hear me talk about her. Um, She is a licensed and trained uh, hairstylist. She has a salon in her home. That's who does my hair. If you don't like my hair, just take it up with her, right? In fact, I need a haircut. I need to go see her this week. I'm thankful for my son, Trent who is an art teacher. He's very artistic, incredible drawer, and um, he's a graphic designer. If I ever need a drawing, I'd said a couple weeks ago, hey, I need you to draw something for me. You can design graphics. He can do that. My daughter, Amber, she's going to be an attorney, Lord willing, and I told her I'm not so happy about you being a professional arguer, but if I need uh, legal advice, she's going to be the one I go to when she passes the bar, Lord willing. My son, Trevor, he's going to be a senior in high school. You may not know this, but he is a professional Zaxby's chicken cooker. What a benefit, right? Now, if I told you I love my five kids because of what they can do for me, the benefits they provide for me, you would say, that's a little skewed. That's not quite right. I love my kids because they're my kids. I love them because of the relationship I share with them. Friend, we long for heaven, not because of the secondary benefits of beauty and renewed relationships with loved ones who have gone before. We long for eternal life because we can know God fully. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that you know the only true God and his son whom he has sent. That's the primary gain. But this provision of glory we also see not only at an appointed time to an appointed people for an appointed relationship, but next, by an appointed work. This provision is given to us by an appointed work. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is Jesus saying? I have done and I will do everything, Father, that you have set forth in your plan of redemption for me to do. Here is an affirmation, by the way, of sinless perfection by Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Every task, every call, every work, every responsibility, I've completed it completely. I've accomplished it fully. And because Jesus was and is perfectly sinless, because he was and he is perfectly holy and undefiled. Friend, from the very first time he breathed his first breath when he exited the womb of his mother Mary to the very last breath he breathed hanging on the cross and every breath in between, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. He never sinned, not a cross word, not a cross thought. He was obedient. We are disobedient. He was righteous. We are unrighteous. He never sinned. We, however, are totally depraved. And because of the cross, God looked at Jesus on the cross and he saw our sin on him. But glory to God. God looks at we who are in Christ 
and he sees in us his sinless perfection. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of this great work where he's imputed that righteousness and that perfection to us. Jesus is in effect saying here in verse 4, Father, get me to the cross. Get me to the cross so that I can provide eternal life. Get me to the cross so I can culminate my whole life of perfect obedience to be imputed to sinners. Get me to the cross so I can fully accomplish and fulfill the work of the Father that he's giving to me. Friend, this is unimaginable, unthinkable provision, and this is unimaginable, unthinkable glory. Jesus is all about his glory. At least the second thing I want us to see, not only the provision of glory, and these next points will go a little shorter, so don't worry. Number two, the petition of glory. The petition of glory. We see this prayer of petition for glory in verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. To be sure, the cross was a glory because through it, the cross provided eternal life to we who so desperately need it. Through the cross, he demonstrated perfect obedience to the will of the Father. That's glory. And through the way of the cross, he returned to the Father. Glory. But in verse 5, that's not the specific glory for which Jesus is praying. He's petitioning the Father that when it's all said and done, that he would return to the same glory he enjoyed, not just before his incarnation, but the glory he enjoyed and experienced before the world even existed. Glory. Now, Jesus has already stated that glory is an integral part of his person and his work, but the glory here in verse 5, I think, could be best understood by the Old Testament word to describe glory, and it's the word Shekinah. Shekinah glory. That is a brilliance. It's resplendent glory. That is a bright light of glory. It is an unapproachable light. We can see this light of glory, this Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses had to be protected in the cleft of the rock because of the resplendent, shining, brilliant glory that was to pass by him when the Father passed by. We see whenever they built the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings that the glory of God rested upon that tabernacle. And then when Solomon built the permanent temple structure at its dedication, the glory, the resplendent magnificence of God descended so much so that the priests could not stand in the glory to perform their ministerial acts. And even this glory leaked out from Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and those three trembling disciples saw it, that we can consider the glory of God or the glory of Jesus really in two ways. His internal glory, which is his character, his nature, and his external glory, which is his resplendence, his brilliance, his brightness that is overwhelming. So here's how theologians describe the incarnation of Christ. He had all of the internal qualities of glory, but he veiled those external qualities. That when he took on human flesh, those external qualities of the brilliance and the Shekinah glory of God were veiled in human flesh. Because if he had not veiled him, them, 
no one be, would be able to approach him. He would be unapproachable. And Jesus is saying, I've perfectly displayed the internal qualities of deity throughout my humanity. Father, bring back the external glory I shared with you from before all time began. Glory. Glory. This is also a clear and unmistakable claim of deity. Jesus says, I'm looking forward to the glory I had before creation. We saw this in John 1.1 when we began this study almost two years ago. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word what? Was God. He has always existed, contrary to what the cults say. He is God from before anything was anything. Jesus existed in glory with the Father. Now, this concept would have been a monumental uh, truth for the ears of these Jewish disciples, the 11 that he's talking to. This would have been a total paradigm shift in their thinking and in their theology, and here's why. They would have been very familiar with what Isaiah said, what the Lord said through Isaiah in Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. But here in John 17, Jesus says, Father, I petition you for the same glory I had before the world began. What is Jesus saying? I am God. I'm God. That's the pronouncement. This is the glory that the first Christian martyr, Stephen, got a glimpse of as he's on trial before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and he's giving his testimony of the work of Christ. He's just a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. But God gives Stephen, there on trial for his life, in that moment, a supernatural vision of the glory of Christ in heaven. Notice what the Bible says in Acts 7, beginning in verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, that's the Jewish leaders, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They, they became like immature children. Nah, 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 don't, 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 don't. They didn't want to hear about Jesus being God. But that is exactly what Stephen saw. And that is what John, the revelator, would see in the book of Revelation. And that is what Paul would see and witness when he was caught up into the third heaven, the resplendent glory of Jesus forever and always. And Jesus is making petition here. Father, bring me that back to that glory. Which leads right to the third thing to notice this morning. Number three, the presentation of glory. Jesus starts off the second paragraph with these words, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What does it mean that Jesus manifested God's name? Manifest is not a term we use very often in our modern day vernacular. It simply means to reveal. Manifest means to make known something that was previously hidden. So Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the world. He's not saying that 
He went around telling people the name of God, particularly, some moniker for God. He didn't just go around and say, hey, did you know God's name is Yahweh? Hey, did you know that? That's not what his ministry was. It was to manifest those attributes or those things that were previously hidden. In other words, his character, his nature, his essence. He manifested the glory of God. But here's the distinction I want you to catch. You see, Jesus is much more than just the manifestor of God's glory. He is the manifestation of God's glory. He is much more than just the revealer of God's glory. He is the revelation of God's glory. And that's the distinction between him and us. We all are called to be the manifestors of the glory of God, but none of us have the capacity to be the manifestation of glory. We're all called to reveal the glory of God to our neighbors and to the nations, but none of us can be the revelation of glory. Jesus alone. And I want you to remember where this prayer occurred. Again, it occurred at the end of Jesus's long teaching from chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And in the middle of that instruction, there's an interesting exchange that happens between Jesus and one of his disciples named Philip. Look at it at John 14, beginning at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. What's he saying? I'm not just a revealer of God. I'm the revelation of God. I'm not just a manifester of God. I am the manifestation of God, the full display of God. Notice how Paul described this manifestation of the glory of God in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown, that's glory, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the manifestation. Jesus is the revelation, the materialization of the name and the glory and the character of God. But look again at our focal passage. He says he manifested this glory, again, to a distinct group of people. Look at verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to whom? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I mentioned earlier that this provision of salvation is to an appointed people. Not once, not twice, but seven times in this high priestly prayer, Jesus makes mention of the fact that those who are saved are those who have been appointed by the Father. And he says, Father, the people I'm praying for are the people you gave me as a love gift. Now listen, if you're one of those people, nothing in this reality should evoke a sense of pride in you. Oh, I'm one of the chosen. No way. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. We didn't earn or deserve any of it. There's nothing in us that is inherently worthy of it. Jesus the Savior was a grace gift from the Father to the people. I have manifested your name to those people, and the people are a gift from the Father to the Son. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. But then notice also verse 8. He describes the means by which he manifested this glory. 
Look at it. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. How does God manifest his glory through Jesus to us today? Do not miss this, Christian, through his word. Through his word. I've manifested you to them through the words you gave me. So believer, if you only hear the word for 30 minutes on Sunday morning, little glory. But if you think on the word, you listen to the word, you read the word, you study the word, you discuss the word, massive manifestation of glory. It's through the word. In fact, look at this next slide. Glory is imparted through the revelation of God through his son, and glory is imparted through the revelation of God through the word. I hope you realize the significance of the word, the significance of the Bible. In fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at verse 17, among other verses that said, where he prays, Father, sanctify them, how? In the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is an extension of who he is. If I say something to you and I say, I give you my word, what is that saying? Based on my reputation, based on my character, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And you have the option to respond whether or not to believe me. If I've broken my word to you in the past, you may not believe me in the future. Your trust on what I say is based upon your understanding of my reputation and my character. The same is true for God. He says, I give you my word, and his word is trustworthy. But this section of the high priestly prayer concludes finally, number four, with this promise in verse 10, and that is the preservation of glory. The preservation of glory. God will preserve, important word, all those who are love gifts to the Son. There's a preservation of the eternal life, the salvation which Christ is purchasing in them. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, Jesus returns to this idea, I told you, as mentioned seven times in this prayer, that Jesus stakes a claim upon all those who are given to him from the Father All mine are yours, and yours are mine. This is similar to what Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John when Jesus said, no one can pluck them out of my hand. And he says, the Father who's greater than all, no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. This is the preservation of those who are his, those who are saved, those who have eternal life. And the Father says to the children of God, you're mine. And the Son of God says to all who have believed, you're mine. You're never going to get plucked out. You're eternally his. But this preserving work is for what? It's all about glory. And I am glorified in this. Consider this. If I were to ask you, how is Jesus glorified in us as individuals? How is Jesus glorified in us as a church? You could give a lot of different responses. You could say, well, 
Jesus is glorified in us as we seek to expand the kingdom of Christ into the dark places of the world, both across the street and around the world. We could say Jesus is glorified in us as we pursue holy living set apart in the way we live and we act and we think and we talk, our business practices. We could point to the fact that Jesus is glorified in us as we just experienced together heartfelt, passionate worship of God, that Jesus is glorified in us. And while those things are all true, that's not the most significant way that Jesus is glorified in us. You see, because at the end of the day, the way Christ is given great glory in our lives is not by something we do for him, but he's glorified by what he has done for us. The greatest and most pristine way we give glory is by the fact that he has saved us as wretched sinners. In fact, I love the way Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, wrote about it in his commentary on this passage, John 17. As I read it this week, this particular paragraph struck out to me. And with this, I'll close. Spurgeon writes, when the Lord lays hold upon a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, when he arrests one who has been guilty of blasphemy, whose heart is reeking with evil thoughts, when he picks up the far one, the abandoned, the dissolute, the fallen, as he often does, and when he says, these shall be mine, I will wash these in my blood, I will use these to speak my word, oh, then he is glorified in them. Read the lives of many great sinners who have afterwards become great saints, and you will see how they have tried to glorify him. Not only she who washed his feet with her tears, but many another like her. Oh, how they have loved to praise him. Eyes have wept tears, lips have spoken words, but hearts have felt what neither eyes nor lips could speak of adoring gratitude to him. I am glorified in them. Great sinners, Christ is glorified in you. What is Spurgeon saying? Christ is doing in and through us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is bring great glory to him because Jesus is all about his glory. And that leads to my last thought. As the glory of Christ has been imparted to us, we are called to reflect that glory to the world in which we live.